Hey everybody, got an awesome episode for you today, but first, gonna do a word from our sponsors, as well as give you a little more administrative stuff going on on the back end of hashing it out, and things we're involved in that you can um, you can become a part of. So, first off, I'd like to thank you, thank our sponsors, Avalanche, Avalanche Labs, the highly scalable open source platform for launching decentralized financial applications. Recently raised about $42 million through a public sale, and now gearing up for its next milestone next week, the launch of its mainnet on September 21st. That's right. They're launching their mainnet September 21st. So get prepared. Uh, also, to bootstrap their ecosystem, Avalanche opened up a bunch of new grants for developers who want to build high-performance DeFi, that's decentralized finance, applications and infrastructure. They have open calls for projects like a decentralized exchange, lending dApps, stablecoins, with more in it every week. So they also accept applications for other decentralized projects to join the Avalanche ecosystem. So go build on Avalanche, build without limits, and go learn more at avalabs.org. That's A-V-A-L-A-B-S.org. As for what we're doing at Hashing It Out, um, there's two things I want to talk about. First is uh, Hashing It Out is a part of the Panvala League. If you don't know what Panvala is, look back a few episodes and we did um, an episode with Neuron about what Panvala is, how it works, so on and so forth. Um, it's a really awesome project that we're happy to be a part of. So um, this round, Panvala is donating about, I think, current pan prices, about $170,000 to the Ethereum community. How does it donate those things? Where does it figure out how to donate them? Well, the Panvala League, has Gitcoin grants and hashing it out as part of the Panvala League. So we have a Gitcoin grant that basically is a multi-sig. And if you donate to that Gitcoin grant with PAN, it'll get matched not only by the CLR matching of typical Gitcoin grants, but also additionally by um, the $170,000 that Panvala is giving out. And then we're going to use that money that's raised through that grant with the advice and um, decisions hold from the Ethereum security community to fund security and, and um, infrastructure projects. I We believe that hashing it out that security and infrastructure is a very underfunded but incredibly vitally important part of the ecosystem that needs more funds. So we're going to try and do that. And you can help by donating PAN or whatever to the Gitcoin grant, the Gitcoin grant that's going to be in the uh, description of this episode. So get your PAN, donate it to us. We'll find a good place for it to help help the security and infrastructure of the Ethereum ecosystem. And uh, other big news that I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast yet is hashing it out is leaving the Bitcoin Podcast Network because the Bitcoin Podcast Network is no longer a network. It's just the Bitcoin Podcast. So uh, over the next maybe ten or so episodes, we're going to be um, continuing on this this feed that you're subscribed to now, but. In the process, there's going to be a new feed that's only going to be hashing it out. You'll need to resubscribe to uh, because at the end, you're not going to be able to get it on the feed you're on now, the Bitcoin podcast. So we're going to have their own thing. We're going to do some new branding, um, try and add some more resources and so on and so forth to the show so that um, you can be a little more uh, stable. Uh, I don't know. We'll see. But we're going to have our own feed. Check out, uh, listen up for it. Check the Twitter. See whenever we uh, publish that. But at least you get to just Listen to us and no one else. It's going to be great. Bitcoin podcast is going where I'm still doing that. It's just two different feeds now. And on to the show. 
Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back to Hashing It Out. I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, with Mr. John Mardlin. How you doing, John? I'm good. You good today? I'm good today, thanks. <laughs> yeah, today's episode, we're going to talk with Marco Rodriguez. Um, Marco's been in the Bitcoin podcast Slack for quite a while as a contributor. I've actually had the pleasure of sitting down with him during, was it DevCon 3? Yeah, What's whichever that? one was in Mexico. Something like whichever that. one was in Cancun, Two or three. Either way, yeah. um, in and out, uh, Marcos said interesting things that I've always found fascinated um, around the implications of internet infrastructure um, to the Web3 movement, so on and so forth. So you have a lot of uh, knowledge and work experience in basically how the internet is built and the infrastructure that pipes the network packets across from my computer to your computer or wherever else and, and uh, kind of how that's built and what motivates how it's built. So I wanted to kind of bring you on and have a conversation about that concept. One, to just to bring it up because it's not really talked about very much, but two, like to discuss some of these, like the way the internet's moving in terms of infrastructure and why it's moving that way. And then how the peer-to-peer decentralization, Web3 movement, whatever you want to call it, um, how that impacts that that like architectural movement. Does that make sense? Sure. All uh, right. So, so yeah, I can. For, yeah, go ahead. Just do the intro right. thing. Tell you where you come from, what you do, so on and so forth. Yeah, sure. It's a bit of background. Um, I mean, for as long as I can remember, probably since I was uh, preteen, like uh, probably ten or eleven, I was just fascinated with connectivity. So, uh, I remember spending a lot of summers just putting together my own computers, uh, working with modems, and just figuring out how internet could work and then started getting uh, interested and fascinated with online gaming. And the best way to make sure your clan and Quake beat the other team was understand how the network works so you can DDoS <laughs> them and make sure they were lagged out and you can frag them. So it kind of took it from there, you know, and then I would say the last 25 years, I've been pretty much involved in some form or another in uh, internet infrastructure. Uh, so it started with me uh, working uh, uh, with a small ISP, uh, mid-sized ISP in Canada, uh, we built out their national infrastructure, and then um, I immigrated to the United States back in 2007 or 8. Uh, interesting timing, uh, needless to say, but I worked for a large uh, vendor that sold networking equipment um, to the largest service providers in the world, the network operators or the mobile network operators, as you guys uh, probably know them as well. Um, and so I've been, you know, just been pretty much in tune with not only the technology, but the whole process of operating and building these large network infrastructures. So uh, I'd say lately, um, the lately, the kind of the Web3 movement and why I actually was kind of interested just in the whole crypto in general and why I've been kind of just it's kind of been a hobby of mine, um, mainly because the energy energy reminds me a lot of what the Internet energy was in the early 90s. The aspirations of what it was trying to build this whole decentralized, uh, uh, you know, uh, movement towards free flowing information. But lately, you know. Uh, as things tend to happen over time, as you get all these economic incentives that line up and just the reality sets in, a lot of centralization has been happening on how these infrastructures actually run. 
Uh, therefore, you know, the whole Web3 movement is kind of like this reawakening of how you decentralize or kind of peel back the onion and try to getting back to the roots of what I call the Internet. So uh, that's kind of a bit, bit, a bit of a brief intro of where I came from. My current role, I'm just uh, I work for a decentralized or sorry, distributed cloud platform company. That's a bit analogous to what we do, but it's a uh, it's part of my day job. I won't bring it up here, but I, I'm the VP of products and solutions there. And that, that kind of consumes most of my time. But I, I tend to kind of pop in and out out of the Web3 space uh, r- relative to Internet infrastructure. I've given talks as well. Uh, where I can uh, when there are local meetups. Um, recently, I've seen some Twitter threads. A lot of the VCs in the crypto space are are kind of you know poking their heads out and looking at how internet infrastructure is being built as well. So I found that it was kind of timely to have this conversation as well. Hence uh, the enthusiasm to hop on and chat about it. Nice, John. You look at you perked up a little bit when you said uh, Canadian ISP. Oh, did I? I I'm Canadian. You guys Canadian ISP. Pardon? It was a uh, prime uh, primus Canada was the uh, ISP was the, the primus Canada was the internet service provider. So oh, man, I just naturalized yeah. into U.S. citizen earlier this year. I've heard of that? Um, Congratulations. Yes, um, but I still have Plan B and C respectively. I have Canadian <laughs> and Port- I have I still have my Canadian and Portuguese passports. Oh, you're Portuguese? But, um, I didn't know that. Yes, so uh, I got the tri got the trifecta there. Yep, Brasileira. That's uh, yeah, there. Right on. So, uh, yeah, uh, I guess an overview perspective, like maybe it's worthwhile to discuss the trends in internet infrastructure and what's motivating them. Like how, like what, what are they, what's their current, I guess, uh, capacity and how are they trying to innovate in order to handle that capacity? So, uh, Reality is there's very little innovation happening in the space. Uh, naturally, with any commoditized business, uh, it's kind of an irony, right? Usually when a, a service or a product, in this case, uh, the internet in this case, uh, becomes so successful, um, it gets commoditized naturally out of its own success because everyone just figures out ways to optimize it. So the whole industry, uh, at least uh, when I was uh, very in it about a year and a half, two years ago, was facing a lot of margin compression. Uh, therefore, uh, there was very little innovation happening in the space, more about optimizing for costs, right? And the downside there is there's less innovation happening on how to evolve the technology in a way that maybe goes beyond just the day-to-day stuff, like just increasing my speeds and feeds, making sure I can deliver you know, 5G infrastructure more efficiently uh, to the homes versus uh, something like SpaceX is doing, right? Like, hey, let's launch 4,000 satellites in the air uh, and try to reinvent how internet connectivity is, is kind of happening. So you won't see a lot of traditional innovation happening in the incumbents, but what, what you will see is a lot of new players coming into the space like SpaceX uh, with, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of capital to kind of build this infrastructure. But to kind of, t- you know, take it a step back, um, it, you know, ultimately it comes down to just um, the, the cost, right? Because uh, what people don't realize is, you know, <clears throat> in, you know, you can, these are all in balance sheets anyways publicly. You can see companies like, uh, uh, you know, like an AT&T or Verizon, um, the, the amount of money they spend on just operating the infrastructure, let alone the capital needed to build the infrastructure, uh, we're talking into 20, 30 billions of dollars a year, right? Uh, so naturally, they're going to want to optimize that cost over time. And they have been because it's all about, you know, increasing margin, therefore shareholder value. That's kind of the way the, you know, publicly listed uh, companies work. Um, and if you kind of go back to the 1990s, one perfect example I like to always bring up was um, BitTorrent. You know, if the kids are old enough to remember BitTorrent, uh, bottom line is libp2p from projects like uh, IPFS. Um, 
heavily rely on the BitTorrent concept, point to point, essentially. Uh, and what was happening back then in the 90s is you didn't have this uh, huge amount of bandwidth like you have now um, in the homes. And even now, arguably, a lot of your traffic at home is asymmetric. Um, meaning traffic is optimized for downstream than it is upstream. Like you usually get the 100 gig down or sorry, 100 megs down or one gig down and very limited upstream. And that's by, that's by design because the, the, the traffic patterns of individuals are that. It's all about consumption, less about producing content. But if you go back to the 90s, you know, the whole BitTorrent thing came out, then as a protocol, people started uh, latching apps on top of it. Then you had things like Napster and Napster kind of exploded, right? And then from there, you started seeing all this point-to-point -point traffic flowing on these internet uh, providers and networks. And they're like, in the beginning, it was pretty benign. They're like, hey, all right, fine. But what started happening is it started growing. People were using it to share uh, music, videos, legal or legal and illegal. doesn't matter. At the end of the day, what was happening was at the last mile from your home or your cell towers, when the, those devices they connect to were getting congested, right? And naturally, when you have a paying customer saying, hey, I'm trying to hit Google.com. Why isn't it working? Uh, the internet service provider is not going to turn around saying, well, you know, Joe Schmo down the street is, uh, you know, he's uploading a five gig video of the latest DVD rip of some movie, right? Uh, so naturally <laughs> what, what happened was they created a whole new industry called DPI, which is deep packet inspection. And you have companies literally formed whole new markets where the only goal was to filter the traffic and drop it. They did unique things like they would, they would tickle the TCP windows so it would collapse. So therefore your throughput will go down. But bottom line is they started filtering the traffic of point to point, right? And that happened in the 90s. Um, and it was pretty bad, bad back then because uh, the bandwidth technology didn't didn't uh, it wasn't keeping up, right? Because your your home uh, was still limited to 10, 15 megs. Uh, more importantly, the aggregation points they they were very expensive as well. So they created two, three billion dollar industries companies where they would pretty much design to just filter point to point traffic. Uh, but naturally, over time, what happened was you had the uh, evolution of technology. You got the the cable plants started evolving. You got fiber coming to the home. So there's more and more bandwidth that started being delivered to the home. So less of the DPI was happening at the edge. Now, fast forward to today, what you see happening is very similar to the point I was mentioning earlier about margin compression. You have all this margin compression happening in the industry. And, and you know, at the end of the day, they can't charge you or me three, four, five hundred dollars a month. Right. At least that's not the expectation uh, to, to date. So what do they do? They start saving costs in other part of the network. All right. Fine. You know, the natural uh, uh, the natural behavior will be all right. You know, what does Petty do at home? Uh, uh, what is, uh, you know, what is what is John doing at home? Um, and they see, you know, 80, 90% of your traffic is downstream. Hey, out of that 80, 90%, maybe five, uh, maybe out of that 5%, it's web traffic, but 95% is Netflix, YouTube, Amazon, Spotify. And the irony there is under all of that, uh, most of it's probably Amazon's web services. So, you know, then the, the, the what starts to happen in their mind is, hey, let's optimize the infrastructure to deliver content cost effectively to these environments and not to the others. So to, to make an analogy, it's like, um, you know, in the Bay Area, say, you know, going to San Francisco in the morning, um, you know, there's a lot of traffic, right? So, you know, one day they decide, hey, let's build eight more lanes into the city. Uh, but over time, someone decides to say, hey, I want to run point to point decentralized web everywhere, uh, which means the roads have to be four lanes everywhere else. Who's going to pay for that and when? So naturally, the only the only result will be congestion. So that's kind of what's happening now. And to literally give you one uh, data point now, the latest one is Zoom, right? Zoom as a as a company, 
uh, they weren't considered critical infrastructure. Now they are, right? So, so if you look at just their builds in the last six months, they're expanding from like a, a, a literally a handful of data centers to almost every data center that they can, and they're just rapidly expanding, right? And now, naturally, the internet infrastructure, um, all these internet service providers are rapidly trying to get a hold of Zoom, saying, "Hey, let's connect directly because it's more efficient that way because our customers need to connect to you." So it's it's usually less about technology, more about what's happening, and more driven by the business and the economics of things. And I think. Um, that's what I'm trying to bring to light is uh, if, you know, someone decides, uh, you know, tomorrow saying, hey, um, you know, the web, the, in the whole Web3 space, let's just flip on a switch and then, uh, you know, magically everything's going to be served via IPFS or, or some other uh, delivery technology and say, um, yeah, I'm going to serve websites from my home because I'm incentivized to do so with, with some, uh, you know, some token as an example. Reality is it'll be okay probably for the first couple of years, but once you hit that critical mass, uh, you have this underlying infrastructure that just can't support it. And more importantly, the business models don't support it as well. So, and they're not in the value chain. So naturally, their only response is going to be to try to filter control it. That's my view, and, at least. So it, it comes to the nature of a lot of these things is the fact that you just said they're not in the value chain and it tends to be a distributed or decentralized peer-to-peer -peer connection on how these things are served. And, and a lot of it drastically expands the um, uploading requirements from the individual user. Do you see, Correct. do you see a future where like the infrastructure can adapt to this based on the service demand by the users? Or is it something that just like, because overwhelmingly the majority of bandwidth is coming from, um, service consumption, like Netflix and stuff, like they're just, there's, it's, it's always going to be a blip on the radar. Um, it'll, oh, I mean, it's, it's already, it's, it, it currently is a blip in the radar and it'll, and it always will be. There's always the the rest, what I call the 5% of the traffic that they really don't care about, which is the benign stuff. But the moment that starts to creep up and start to get on the radar where it's actually impacting the performance and quality of the network, um, that's when they start to care. And there's, there's a couple of things they can do to react to it, to your point. Um, it's never a question of technology. What I mean is... Uh, uh, you know, you and I, for example, uh, or all any of us rather, uh, depending on where we are physically, we either have access to a physical plant, whether that's cable or fiber. Um, they're designed uh, literally um, to optimize for the download than it is the upload. But there's no reason why they couldn't configure the wavelengths or the spectrum on the wireless side for like 4G or, or 5G to optimize for upstream or make it symmetrical. I mean, most of like uh, uh, fiber deployments today are one gig symmetrical. But the, the, the reality and the joke is I always see people paying two, three hundred dollars for one gig to the home. The reality is your next hop from there is likely not giving you that capacity upstream. So I always find that 100 meg is usually the sweet spot for the home because naturally you can't consume one gig from somewhere far away. Uh, and usually when people do speed tests, the service providers kind of optimize for that. They run speed tests closest to your home. So it looks like you're getting a gig. And in reality, you are. But the reality is most of your content is somewhere further away. But back to your question, is it's not a technology problem. It's a business problem. Right. And the question then is. Uh, uh, there's two ways about it, right? They can start make a consumption based saying, uh, hey, um, fine, um, I'll let you start sending a lot more traffic upstream, but we got to go to a, a usage based model. Therefore, you know, instead of the all you can eat model where you're paying 50, 60 month and maybe $20 uh, extra a month uh, to get unlimited because they do have a UBI model today. They, they kind of cap you naturally just increase that cap, right? So now people, so you and I, for example, if we decide to run some, some type of distributed, uh, um, technology in our home, whether it's for storage, for IPFS, and I know there's tons of others out there, um, and say our upstream traffic starts to go up in an order of magnitude, like five, six times, we, uh, you and I might have to start paying two, three, four hundred dollars a month, if that's how the service providers react in order to fund the infrastructure builds. Uh, so the question now is, is it, what, it, what's the incentive for me to pay that 400 a month? Am I making that kind of money? 
by running this infrastructure or enabling these services in my home. That's one way about it. Another way about it is they they introduce themselves into the value chain. See, one argument I tend to make is uh, they've been so uh, commoditized as a as a as a an operator. Uh, one way to reintroduce themselves into the value chain because everything is over the top now. Whether it's a Netflix that's running and producing content, whether it's Twilio providing very similar functionality to a telco, whether it's AWS, uh, GCP, or Amazon, or sorry, uh, uh, Google, all these guys are literally reaping the benefits of the infrastructure these these companies have built out over the last twenty years. Um, you know, it's you want to figure out a way how to, if you want to compete with them, therefore align yourself in the incentive model. So there's two ways of going at it, honestly. I don't see them as forward thinking like that. Therefore, the natural progression I see happening is they'll just end up charging you and I more. Uh, therefore, the question then becomes, is that cost that we pay extra per month, are we reaping the benefits of those costs with whatever incentive we've been given to run uh, those services in our home? That's kind of how I see it playing out, at least in the in the short to midterm. That puts a new spin on... Kind of like if I, if I look at like Filecoin, for, for example, right, the the requirements and resources required to run a validator for Filecoin are, are pretty extensive, uh, meaning mm-hmm. that you need some type of um, organization or upfront capital and access to pretty specialized hardware in order to just participate in the validation process. Leaning towards people like larger corporations actually doing it, maybe that's something that ISPs would want to be involved in in terms of a service they provide in the process of like reintroduce themselves back in the value chain because I'm not going to be able to do that. Do you feel like that's a that's something people have caught onto and they're trying to get in there or is it just kind of a consequence of decisions they made in the no, process of creating the protocol? It, like, it, I mean, it's the consequences. It'll be an oh shit moment. And, uh, and that, honestly, in, in, in business, that's usually what it comes to. It's like someone until it's a unless it's painful. Uh, usually when there's pain, therefore there's a problem. And if there's a problem, there's value to be uh, inserted in order to address it, therefore to make money. That's how, at least, I mean, not to be so basic about it is uh, there's always the aspirational, you want to focus on the big vision, but ultimately uh, the day-to-day in terms of execution, people tend to focus on what's the pain points for today. Um, I mean, I've had these discussions, I've tried to bring it up in the space, Um, like give you a perfect example, right? In uh, 2010, 2009, wireless networks were literally tipping over. Right, they were literally falling over. They were on fire, and, and everyone, and whether people remember it or not, it was very simple. They're like, "What happened? Why was why was it doing that?" Very simple. Any wireless network today, or any wireless device that you have uh, at home, uh, any every session that you create, uh, like if you go to, um, you know, the BitcoinPodcast.com, um, it'll likely probably create 20, 30 TCP sessions. Whether it's all the little ad trackers in the background uh, for analytics uh, to download the website, doesn't matter. Those 20, 30 sessions on a mobile device was resulting in 2030 sessions being tracked in the mobile network. Um, and there's reasons for that, right? It's uh, at home, it's you don't have a stateful uh, device at home. I mean, you do to some degree, but not to the level of the mobile networks. The reason the mobile networks had these firewalls that captured and managed state was very simple because you once in a while you see, uh, uh, hey, if you have T-Mobile, you get Netflix for free if it's 480p or below, uh, right? It's part of your plan. Well, how do you determine that? Simple, right? They, they kind of do some t- clever tricks where they insert certain headers in the HTTP and that first device, the firewall in the mobile network says, hey, this guy is coming in Netflix 480p. Let me dip into this uh, authentication slash authorization server. Yep, he's part of this plan. All right, send him this way, right? So the the point is to kind of make the, to go back to the original point is, one device was now generating hundreds of connections because you literally had your browser, Safari, on the first iPhone, which in the past, it was like this, this really shitty mobile device creating 10 or five sessions. Now you had a single device creating hundreds, if not thousands of sessions. 
So now you add tens of thousands of mobile devices, literally the things, the, the, net, the networks were melting. So they had to go spend hundreds of millions of dollars to build out just this one layer of uh, firewall slash proxy infrastructure. That just to give you a very simple example of just, you know, the, the, the cause and effect, right? The, the, the cause was awesome smartphone. Everyone loved it. The effect was, holy shit, network was architected this way. Let's react to it. And the reason there was money for it is natural, right? Because everyone was signing up for unlimited data plans. All the mobile carriers are making tons of money and Apple was making tons of money, right? Um, I don't see that happening. Like what's what's going to be the trigger point for you and I, for example, to run uh, a Filecoin node at home? Like say we even decide, because uh, I just, I literally, I load up an Ethereum node on my laptop, just goofing around, or even a Filecoin node. It literally creates 15 to 20,000 connections. I mean, that's mind boggling, but that's the expectation, right? So I've had conversations in some of the protocol lab Slack channels. I'm saying, you guys realize this shit won't scale. I mean, I'm very honest and I'm very upfront <laughs> with them, right? They're like, uh, yeah, the solution is we cap it to a thousand sessions. I'm like, fine, but the most you'll ever get from a thousand sessions on, is maybe on a laptop. You'll never be able to pull that off on a phone. Like, what's your vision? And their, their response is natural and, and it's expected. I'm not expecting them to do much is uh, they just say, hey, uh, when we get to that problem, we'll look at it, right? But um, my point is, don't think of it just as a technical issue. It's also, it's more about an incentive, right? There's a lot of game theory involved here. And uh, that, once you to figure that out, then you can figure out how you really build out the infrastructure in a way that and everyone can kind of um, uh, benefit from it. Um, that's kind of how I see it, at least. Yeah. So, so it's, it sounds pretty clear that you're saying, like, industry follows usage patterns and, and responds to demand, essentially. Yep. Uh, but what would have to happen? Like, what would say the demand was there for um, usage patterns that are completely, you know, far more decentralized, uh, much more P2P, not necessarily conforming to the well, well uh, traveled roads that that are there already? Uh, what kind of lift would that be? And like, what 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 would even have to happen for that demand to be satisfied or addressed? My my. Uh... Uh, so the the immediate thing that would have to happen, like <laughs> it was back in March, um, my cable my cable modem kept resetting once a day. I finally lost, you know, it's during the pandemic. Everyone, you know, no one wanted to come out. I, I was with Comcast. Finally, I literally just told him, look, I looked at this, your CMTS. I found it in my block, and I looked at my port, and I said, you have erosion here. There was some water leaked into the box. You got to come and replace it. They ended up doing that, right? But uh, that's 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 less the point. The point I want to make is. That device that I pointed them, I pointed out to them, has a certain fixed capacity. Let's just call it uh, X, right? And X can be uh, sliced in a way that says 80% is allocated for channels downstream, 20% is allocated for uh, uh, traffic upstream, right? And now, what would need to happen is uh, there has to be an, an economic incentive for them to say, "Hey, do we switch that to 50-50?" Right or there or do we need to put a bigger box there? And these boxes, which they call CMTSs, cable modem termination systems, um, for cable plants at least, DSL and fiber are different things, um, and for radio it's also different. Uh, but to 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 put these kind of new boxes out there, you're talking about hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions of dollars, because guys have to come out, rip out boxes. It's it's a it's disruptive to the customers, right? They have to plan a maintenance window, so those things don't happen overnight. So you either the natural the the immediate solution, I guess, um, John, to your question is they can start tweaking the parameters for the uh, downstream upstream, but there's there's uh, there's a flip side to that. Hey, if we give more upstream for Marco to host some random website uh, for a D, you know, Web3 blog or for what is perceived as uncontrollable content, uh, you know, let's just face it, you know, because it's decentralized, there's going to be content there that you have less of a single throat to choke like YouTube, for example. Therefore, um, that that'll be one view. The other view is like if we tweak the fifty percent down, 
Netflix users in this cable plan, therefore, would experience maybe not 4K uh, streaming, maybe uh, 1K, maybe 720p. So there, that's the downside, right? Because you only you always have just a fixed capacity, right? And you can play with the fixed capacity as an immediate solution. You can grow the fixed capacity, which is a capital intensive uh, process. And the question then becomes is who pays for that, right? So that goes back to the, the, do, does Corey and I decide to pay two, three hundred a month just because I want to host some random blog off my computer and maybe make five, 10 bucks a month in Filecoin or what is it, right? So uh, to end, I don't know if I answered your question directly, John, or indirectly. I guess the question, the, from a technology standpoint, it's very clear what what those answers can be. It's always about the 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 timing to do, like if, if you can always tweak the existing parameters in the system that's there today, or you can upgrade the capacity of the system, which takes a longer uh, longer cycle to do. Um, because you just have to plan that out, get people out there, rip wires out, replace boxes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and by the way, that's that's just the last mile. Like from literally from me and my home to like a box in my neighborhood. Then yeah. you got fiber plants that go to what they call points of presence. Then you got the data centers. Then you get the massive backbones that connect the global infrastructure. So th those things all have to be considered because also those see what uh, what I, I presented at the Web three uh, summit. Uh, I think a couple of years ago feels like a couple of years ago was the 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 last mile. My home to this cable the, to this first device has been highly optimized for asymm asymmetry. But what's been happening, as I mentioned earlier in the call, is the margin compression that's happening in the uh, the, the the internet delivery business has been so strong uh, because the demand just keeps growing, right? Is that they've been optimizing this asymmetry further into the network, and that's 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 a much harder thing to unwind because the cost there get into the tens of millions, hundreds of millions, right? So um, they've been optimizing kind of the second, third tier of the networks uh, towards the core to be more centralized within the box. Right, and uh, they're optimizing for that right down to the memory, right? Because uh, not to get too technical, but you know, when I try to go Netflix.com, that tends to, that that results in an IP address, and then the router has to make a decision what interface I send that out. Well, then there's different kinds of memory, right? You have le uh, level one, two, three, four. Level one memory is the memory you can look up, look up within microseconds uh, and then send the packet out. Because the longer it takes you to look up a pack or a uh, an interface, the longer it takes to get the packet there and it impacts the user experience. Uh, so they're even optimizing right down to that level. Like, do I put uh, all of Netflix uh, uh, routes on my layer one memory? And then I put maybe uh, Joe Blow's prefixes, which happens to now be P2P on level three memory. Um, you know, and what's been happening is they've been putting more and more of the core internet services, the content providers where the most of the demand is on this level one stuff and throwing the rest out there just to optimize the cost of the box. And that's where I'm saying it's hard. It's going to be very hard for the internet uh, service providers to unwind what they're doing because they're optimizing the physical infrastructure right down to the boxes, right down to the memory components uh, for the current usage patterns of today. You know, I was going to say on top of that, um, kind of what you mentioned earlier, like that no one knows, no one talks about uh, this specific scenario in terms of how the internet is reoptimized, the internet infrastructure is reoptimizing itself to serve all the stuff that's being consumed and and how that like affects network traffic, at least like how we consume network traffic. And I would venture a guess, and I don't think either of you would argue with me or anyone else who's listening to this would argue with me, that the incentive models that people are coming up with with respect to peer-to-peer -peer services and blockchain have not thought about this and are not aligned with this kind of reorganization, right? Uh, they're doing it from a, like, they're, this, they're completely ignorant of this. Is there any type of 
restructuring of incentive models that people should be aware of when thinking about how to think about the service providers of their particular network and how they offer. Because like you said, right? Like you can run an IPS node that opens up thousands of, of, of connections for potentially maybe five to $10, five to $10 a month in, in providing services, right? But like, that's because they're not thinking about these things and the potential cost to you based on what happens if they come wildly successful. How do you re-architect the incentives to be aligned with this type of thing such that like, in the event that that happens, the people who are providing the services are going to get paid commensurate with the costs of running those services? It's a, it's a hard question, uh, Corey. I, I mean, I've, I've noodled with it in my head. Um, definitely requires uh, a lot of money and a lot of brain power. Um, because in my mind, right, what, I, uh, what I see closely tied is the bandwidth is not an infinite resource, right? Uh, and if anything, bandwidth as a property is being uh, kind of morphed uh, uh, organically over time uh, to be optimized for the consumption patterns of the day. Um, what, I'm, what ultimately that means is, there's, there's a phys- physicality, there's a physical aspect in the, re- in the real world where you have a, a finite resource that's tied now to this aspiration f- for dramatically changing the content delivery behavior. Um, and there's a huge disconnect there, right? Um, and not just a disconnect in the incentive models, but the actual operators or the, the, the organizations and companies who literally lay out this infrastructure, right? And uh, I, don't, I don't have a, a quick answer for you. And it's, it's just not the... The last mile, like uh, you know, um, and what I just what I, everything I've talked to you right now about is literally the physical cable plan. Uh, Spectrum is another. That's just another level, right? It's like uh, you know the you know um, there 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 are companies, uh, individuals who were who licensed Spectrum from the FCC 40, 50 yeah. years ago, uh, who are billionaires now and they own space. That's all they own, right? And they license uh, Spectrum to AT and T and Verizon at the tens and fifteens of billions for our ability to download more things on these devices. Right, and as these things start to be consumed more, um, spectrum then becomes even a higher cost commodity. So you, all, there's all these dynamics uh, on the operators and the capital costs needed for this resource, and there's a complete disconnect on how these protocols are being built on the top. Um, can can the two be built in a way where they they kind of align? Yes, but that's like a that's something that requires thinking now and execution that probably will take a five ten year journey in my view. I, I, I'm almost of the belief that you almost have to build a uh, you have to start building it a whole new infrastructure in parallel to it, and it's been done like very similar to SpaceX. But then you know you got a guy like Elon who's saying, "Hey, uh, let me just launch all my satellites into space. Fuck everyone else. I'm cutting them all out." Um, because I can't deal with that shit anymore. I'm putting 4,000 plus satellites. I think FCC just approved 8,000 um, and he's starting from scratch. But I, I, I mean, other than him, I was going to say he doesn't think about crypto. He, well, he does, or whether it's the real him or not is questionable, but uh, it does <laughs> pop up once in a while. But the, the reality is, will SpaceX kind of think of how they align these incentive models? I don't think so. And satellites is not the right solution for upstream. They're highly optimized for downstream uh, as well at the radio level. So very long way of saying, I don't have an answer for you. I've thought about it, but unfortunately the day job gets in the way and I just haven't really sat down and, and I'm probably not the right guy to do it. But one thing I will throw out there, I think it's a perfect time for the people who, who, who figure out the right incentive model and ultimately requires this new build of infrastructure physically, but also at the protocol level. Uh, you know, and, and you see it all the time. And, and naturally, I think what's going to happen is you will see a disconnect between uh, China and the rest of the world or whoever else China gets into their internet. Uh, they they've already kind of have it. At least they're public about it. The Great Wall. Uh, you know, we're less public about it here, but 
you know, the NSA does does look at things, uh, right? I mean, it's been it's been well documented by certain individuals. Uh, but bottom line is the internet is still free. But if you if if you have enough understanding of the protocol level, um, it's 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 actually pretty pretty obvious. Right? Like China every day uh, randomly uh, says, "Hey, uh, for the next eight hours, I'm UBS. Therefore, route all traffic to me." Uh, Russia does the same thing too. So what I'm trying to say is the security at the protocol level for the internet infrastructure is very weak. It was almost like uh, uh, 20 years ago, we just trusted you. I right? was like, hey, Perry, uh, you tell me you own these 10,000 customers. Therefore, I believe you. Uh, I will enforce that manually on my router. Uh, and uh, hopefully no one else tries to uh, screw with that type of uh, understanding. There are like public databases that track this, but it's all managed by like a single entity. And it's easy to manipulate that data. And that's why like uh, uh, countries like, again, Russia and China, they literally intercept all this traffic uh, to you know to 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 sniff it right. So what I'm saying is there's 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 possibilities where I see some blockchain technology solving the security aspect there. If you kind of lump that all together with this really uh, really uh, kind of new infrastructure build, uh, a truly new internet uh, in parallel, that I think has uh, more potential um, because you can make the case that it's more secure. It's designed in a certain way that better aligns with uh, you know all the non-technical reasons of why people want uh, Web three, given all the geopolitical climate as of late. Um, you just need a whole lot of capital and really smart people who are who are willing to do that, right? And that'll be a five ten year project uh, at least, just like the internet was, right? It really started in the in the mid nineties, like early nineties. That's interesting. I'm trying to think like, like on top of that, like what's not going to work? Because like, is it? It's a lot of the times you hear. The marketing pitches of a lot of projects, status is uh, uh, partially involved with this, is that like everyone's equal. All nodes are equal. Run a node on your phone. Um, do all these things. And when you take a look at the networking stack, dev P2P, lib P2P, that's certainly not the case of what the resources, the, if you look at the resources available on each of these machines and what they're capable in terms of like processing, memory, computing, and bandwidth, and connectivity. Uh, even, even the conversation around running an F2 validator hasn't really been talked about based on the resources required to do so. Uh, like, what's not going to work for these larger networks when they're trying to run what would be considered critical infrastructure for these large value networks? Like, it, it's, it, when you have, especially as, you know, the complexity of consensus grows larger and finality becomes more important, you need better data availability and things like that. And we build more and more and more on these networks and the underlying protocols get more ossified. If the infrastructure can't keep up with it, it's going to be an issue. So like having the conversations of what's not going to work, especially in terms of critical infrastructure that's supporting these things, is, is pretty valuable. Like what's not going to work? What sucks? What's what's the way that we're doing things now that clearly isn't going to work in the, in, in the case that we're successful in... We run into these problems where network ISP and infrastructure start saying, like, we're going to have to do something about this. Um, uh, it's a naivety, right? I mean, it's not a what I mean is it, it's these people, you know, the, these projects, the, the industry is so focused on doing their projects. Right. Um, uh, I don't think uh, I don't think they just had the time to think it through. Right. Um, so um, give you. Uh, in my mind, at least the way I see things happening literally is it's, it'll get to the oh shit moment and then people will start to realize, okay, what can we do? But it'll be a painful uh, 6, 12, maybe a couple of years process. Uh, another perfect example, right? Um, uh, you know, uh, you can just search Google. It's probably in the 2010, 2011 timeframe-ish. Um, uh, Netflix was just experiencing an explosion of growth, right? Um, 
it comes down to cost, right? So, uh, you know, Comcast was bitching all the Comcast customers rather like you, you know, anyone who's consuming Comcast to say, Hey, my Netflix sucks, right? I can't stream shit. Right. And then Comcast would be like, not my problem. It's Netflix problem because they have to grow the capacity. Right. And Netflix is saying, no, it's not our problem. It's Comcast problem because they're trying to tar- charge us $40,000 for every 10 gig port. Right. And then there's this finger pointing. Right. And then Comcast is saying, well, I'm not spending half, you know, uh, another five, 10, 15 million, whatever the number uh, will be to upgrade infrastructure when my end cost is not changing. I'm still charging the 60 bucks a month and Netflix is not paying for it either. So there was this, literally there was, I think there was this one point where it was like a 24 hour period where um, they de-peered. It literally broke a portion of the internet where Netflix said, screw you. Comcast said, screw you. And their upstream providers, which is level three, which is a transit provider, uh, they de-peered and it, it was broken until I think the government stepped in and said, you, you guys better reconnect or you're going to get your ass handed to you, right? Um, but it, it, it'll literally come to that. It's going to be like, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, like a, you know, like a, let's, let's assume Definity becomes the platform where uh, there's all this growth happening, right? And um, uh, you know, in choice. order to meet them, pardon? <laughs> it's an what? interesting choice. <laughs> right. Uh, Definity or fine, uh, Ethereum, uh, anyone who has a successful, <laughs> the reason I picked Definity, it was, in, it popped into my head while you were talking is um, I think they've noticed this problem, right? Because uh, two and a half, three years ago, they were hiring for a VP of networking engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very, it's very subtle in their messaging, but they said in order to bootstrap the Definity network, we've built out in data centers ourselves. So in, in some ways, they're already building out this new infrastructure that's needed uh, that'll likely run. Uh, I mean, it's going to connect to the traditional web as we know it today, but it's ultimately what I think is the seeding of building out this physical infrastructure needed for the future internet, right? So that's at least I, I, I you know, I don't know anyone there, you know, full disclosure. I just, when I see the messaging and, you know, I see uh, the random job posting when a recruiter is asking me, you know, if I'm interested, I was like, awesome project. Unfortunately, I just started a new company with a couple of guys. I can't bail on them. Uh, but I see they have that thought process. So uh, back back to my point is, you know, say Definity is that choice or again, uh, status or someone who has all this traffic. Uh, and then you say, hey, I need to increase my capacity to, uh, to AT&T, to, uh, um, I don't know, Verizon, Comcast, because I have customers complaining there. And then those service providers saying, great. You know, they send their sleazy sales guy to you and says, oh, this is awesome, right? Let me uh, let me quote you a couple of connections. Um, that'll be, you know, probably two, two and a half, three hundred thousand dollars per year for 400 gig connection. Right. And you're like, well, well, how do I pay for that? Right. So then you get into that discussion and uh, most people just give in. Right. Uh, some people just put their foot down if they have the market power like Netflix did in that example. But uh, it'll come to that. Just cost. I mean, it. it, it There'll be a, a there'll be a situation where all this capital flows into growing the infrastructure. So finally, it gets the capital gets to a point where your financial person, your CFO, will be like, "This is unsustainable, man. We need we need to figure this out." And then they start to figure out, "Hey, do we build our own infrastructure?" And it'll naturally progress into that. It's kind of how I view it. But short mm-hmm. answer is, I, I yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I, what's an interesting sort of pattern here is like I think plays out in lots of other decentralized systems is just not just it is like not just the demand but like the social aspects so with everything you're talking about there's like you know one person from comcast can call one person from netflix and like hash out the problem together whereas with these the idealized decentralized network there's just there's just no clear point of contact and and large organizations like they they want somebody to go talk to so it seems almost like um yeah, there's there's just like those stakeholder challenges. Yeah, I mean, uh, see, yeah, 
So then uh, I'll, I'll give you my opinion, at least is I don't, I don't think you can ever get away, at least when it comes to the physical world, um, you can't get away from a single entity owning it. That's just the user experience, right? Uh, you know, if, my, if I'm having a cable plant issue, I need to call the phone and say, fix my shit, right? If, if my wireless phone's not working, come fix my shit. And I've, I see all these aspirational projects where they want to create this full mesh point to point. Uh, I was going to use another word, stuff. Um, other than the technology being questionable, I just don't see it working in, in a non-technical sense, right? I mean, there was I've seen some people in some conferences, I forget where a guy was literally walking around he had 10 access points on him. He's like, I'm a mobile, I'm a mobile radio tower. I'm like, awesome. He's like, we're going to go full point to point, right? You know, I'm going to get paid for hosting my point to point connections and ultimately providing Wi-Fi to anyone who's near me. I'm like, well, other than the health reasons for doing that for you, dude, what happens if you go, <laughs> like if you go, what happens if you go away and what happens to the people who are dependent on you for access to the internet? It just, it doesn't work that way. Um, I think when you get, and that's right at the, at the, at the end, what I call the access layer, John, but when you kind of go deeper into it, and that's where, uh, again, why I brought up Definity is at the end of the day, Definity, when, as they build out their data center infrastructure, the, you know, whoever the network guy is, they're going to be like, all right, I need basic connectivity to the internet. Uh, and you only got about five or six players around the world that do that, right? It's either like a, a Cogent or a, a Level 3 or a Tatia, um, uh, Telia. You, pro you probably don't know these names, but these are like, these are tier one providers and most people probably never heard of them. But these are the guys who, who spend 10, $15 billion to, uh, sh you know, send the boat off across the uh, Pacific or the Atlantic and they run fibers along the ocean floor, right? Because that capacity is needed, right? Um, you can't get away from these people providing you that stuff. So uh, anyone who's anyone at that second or third level is ultimately going to have to uh, engage in some commercial engagement with these, these entities, right? Um, then there's the optimization layer. What I just explained was five or six, what they call transit providers. Uh, naturally, you'll be like, hey, um, uh, Cox, which is a regional provider, or um, you have Netflix who are content providers. Uh, th those companies... Um, they're more regional, therefore you want to connect to them directly. And that, that concept is typically referred to as peering in the industry. Um, and that becomes more complicated, but it really comes down to your point, John, uh, most of the internet infrastructure is built on business uh, negotiation and business relationships. It's usually always less technical. It's more about, all right, if I connect to you, what's in it for me? Otherwise I'm asking you for money, right? And um, I, don't, I, I honestly do not see how we get away from that, at least when you get deeper into the infrastructure, because it's, it's such a complex, uh, needs not only to build the capital to build an infrastructure, but to operate it. Can an operator uh, be created day one who's decentralized? Yes, but there's still going to have to be some uh, some entity or someone that decides what those business models look like. Uh, I, I don't know if it's a smart contractor or a DAO. I, I don't know. I, what I'm saying is th those kind of things, I, it's hard for me to map in my mind. Maybe I come from that world, right? And maybe it's, a, and you need a fresher view, but um it's well, that a portion of that is control too, right? Like, like you go to that person because they have the power to do something. And a good portion of the idealism behind decentralized web is is giving up that control and distributing distributing the power across the many. Um, and in that type of situation, who do you go to when you need something changed? Because there's not a single person who can change something, which means it doesn't happen fast. And, and how that grows and to become the standard is not something that I can necessarily wrap my head around. Yeah, it's a, uh, you're right on the money. You need a single throat to choke, right? Especially when it comes to, you know, mom and pop being, being able to access my internet because now more than ever, we're more dependent on it on our day-to-day -day lives. 
Um, you know, and you can't say, well, we asked the DAO, uh, we have this governance, we're going to send out, a, you know, we're hoping someone responds in the next two, three days, right? It, it, it doesn't work that way, in my view. And then you got the regulatory uh, and compliance needs, right? Uh, like it or not, depending on what region you're operating in, uh, if they come and serve you a warrant, you have to comply, right? You have to either, uh, you have to provide the data that they're looking for. Um, you know, they have a warrant saying so-and-so is accused of uh, hosting certain type of content that's inappropriate. Uh, provide all information on this individual. Like, uh, you know, and whatever entity that in, uh, is, uh, or whatever country that entity is operating in has to conform to that as well. Otherwise, um, it'll be very hard for the entity to be even be uh, existing in that in that kind of uh, uh, country, right? So there's a lot of uh, governance uh, at the at the real world and compliance that I think is not uh, uh, not uh, appreciated. Same thing with uh, uh, Europe, right? The Europe has the was a GDPR. The yeah. uh, forget the right know, to GDPR, be forgotten. They're like uh, yes, pretty much. And thing, but there's other things that say uh, my data as a European citizen uh, should never ever be hosted on any computer outside the European Union. Like how do you even enforce that, right? And then if you don't, your your organization or your your you know your your legal entity gets fined tens of billions of dollars, right? It's like okay, um, there's so there's definitely a lot of complexity to it. I I haven't thought through all the all the issues myself. It's just um, you know it's a it's a it'll be an interesting uh, interesting time in the next five years. As I I suspect the Web three movement will pick up steam. Uh, there will be a lot of adoption and success. Um, but I think you'll, you'll, they'll hit this critical point where a lot of people will have that, oh shit moment. All right. How do we figure these things out? And it'll be messy. Um, but you know, like anything we're doing, there's, it's a process, it's a challenge. Um, and, um, I think the out outcome should be positive. Hopefully that's the goal. I agree with you. I just think these conversations yeah. now are worthwhile and for kind of the understanding of like how things are built and the motivation behind how they're being built out. Uh, should be understood more within this ecosystem so that we can position ourselves appropriately or even start to like try and do something about it or understand that, that it's going to be a problem in the future versus just being blindsided by it when it actually happens. Right. Yeah. It's a, I've talked to some VC just in passing, not because, uh, um, you know, I, uh, you know, not, I'm, I'm actively looking to raise VC money from the crypto, like crypto oriented VCs. They have zero clue about this, right? It, even their notion when they say, I want to build infrastructure, um, they're still talking about like second, third level chains, right? I'm like, no, that's not the infrastructure I'm thinking about, right? It's like, a, uh, I'm thinking of other kind of infrastructure. How do you view it? And then I talk to, uh, VCs, you know, in Sand Hill Road, um, you know, they'll invest, uh, they have like a, one or two investments here and there in the crypto space, but they come from a very infrastructure and enterprise oriented world. So there's huge disconnect uh, in uh, expertise uh, and understanding. That's To me, that's the value of that VCs bring to the table. Um, you know, ICOs were fun, but um, I really, uh, especially <laughs> now that I've gone through the process, my, now that I've kind of gone through the process myself, I see the tremendous value they bring. It's mainly the experience, right? And don't get me wrong, there's some who are just nasty out there, but if you find the right VC as a partner, they literally just, you know, they can coach you, they onboard you, they, they kind of help you avoid the pitfalls. The good ones are semi hands-off and hands-on. Um, so there's tremendous value there, but there's still this, in the VC space, you see this disconnect between the understanding. The only one I can see them trying to make an effort uh, is uh, A16Z, but even then it's still very high level. I never see any projects fo focused on, what I would consider the infrastructure discussions. Um, and um, it's uh, it'll be an interesting space, but naturally like anything, if there's a, a, a big problem to be solved, capital tends to kind of flow there. 
Um, so yeah, uh, to get back to your original point I was trying to make is I've had conversations. Uh, I try to bring it up. Sometimes they just get brushed off um, as me trying to be, uh, uh, what's being negative. I'm just trying to be, You're a contrarian, Marco. Yeah, I'm just saying, hey, guys, I love love your shit. You know, I love the energy. I, I was in it when I was building the internet back in the dial-up days, right? I, I love it. Or otherwise, I'll go back to my day job, right? I'll, you know, I'll make my money, hang out there, and that's good. But I, I love the, the the reason why it exists, right? I can, I love the energy. Um, you know, it's just, I want to make sure some of you are, uh, you know, enlightened to what this is. And there's some people who picked that up. There's a couple of guys I've been talking to, at least Protocol Labs, when I presented at Web3. We've kept, um, we've kept kind of on and off conversations, but nothing formal, right? It's, it's just one of those, hey, what's the latest going on there? I've talked to a VCs here and there uh, as well in the crypto space. But like I said, very informal. And of course, you guys in the Slack channel. Um, but uh, maybe maybe in a couple of years, I'll just kind of double down on it and maybe jump in both feet myself. Figure, figure I'll try something there too. Do you have some some specific advice for like what these network developers should be doing differently now to to be more future-proof or, or to anticipate these walls? Or should they just like try to run into these walls quicker and uh, incentivize users to get angry and, um, and call their ISPs? Um, yeah, I, uh, I don't think it's a, from a technology standpoint. I, I don't, as if I'm a network developer, um, I don't, you know, typically the, these things are out of my purview. They, it becomes a challenge, you know, as a developer, at least these things become a challenge when I face them, right. As an architect, right. Uh, you can kind of envision them, but at least uh, my thinking right now is there because of this bridge to the physicality needed of just building this infrastructure, I don't see how you get around the the need to have some type of business development person, someone who, who works at a, at a business level to understand what it takes to put these, uh, you know, these contracts together with all these different entities. Uh, I, you know, it's the equivalent of renting out a home, right? I have to rent out space in the data center, put out this infrastructure. What's my power space cooling? How do I connect it? Uh, these things typically developers never think of, right? Uh, uh, you know, I joke with the most, most people today is once I was, uh, I don't know who I was talking to, but they were saying uh, they were giving a, a, a you know a new set of hires uh, at Amazon, uh, one of the tours of of their data centers, which is typically highly secretive. And one of the developers said, uh, "Oh, look at that router, right? Uh, you know this. You you told me this port is a ten gig, uh, ten gigabits, and this one's a hundred gigabits. Why is this one? Why then? Why are both? Why are they both physically the same size? Right? It's like there's this complete disconnect of the you know the especially the of people understanding how this stuff works. They don't even know what IP address is. In most cases, most people just point to an API endpoint and that's the internet to them, right? So um, education is probably one, right? Um, but I don't know what's going to incentivize the developer to educate themselves. It's like me trying to understand the plumbing or how electricity works nowadays. I mean, I do now that I bought a home, but most people won't do it just for the fun of it, right? Uh, I bought it because there was a need. So to your point, it's I think until they get to that point where they're forced to understand how this stuff works, um, you know, that's the incentive, right? Is, oh shit, I hit a wall. Maybe there's another economic incentive I'm not aware of. I don't know. But if I was these companies, you know, if I knew what my bigger vision was and what would it take to get there, some good planning at the leadership level, then definitely they would understand, hey, we need to really figure this out and get the right people on it now. And that would include how do I build out maybe supporting infrastructure? Uh, how do I build out, uh, you know, business relationships that help address that over time? Right. Um, I think it's more of that and less a developer. Developers will clearly come into the picture, but the thinking right now should be more around that, in my view. Um, but again, that's just that's my point of view. There could be others. Um, I just don't see it. I just uh, 
you know, even if I did an ICO today, right, and, and raise $10 billion because I want to build a, a new decentralized web, right? Um, I couldn't even do it overnight, right? I'd have to hire all the right people. I'd have to figure out what data centers and put my equipment in. Uh, you know, it's going to be another three to four year project just to execute on, right? I would argue so that it's, a, a portion of that requirement in terms of what people should be doing uh, is understanding the consumption that their particular project has on the different players of the network and how that scales over time in the in the event of in the event of success like what does bandwidth do and when our network grows exponentially at what and you can you can plot that as a function if you've mapped exactly how your protocol works in some way shape or form and then where is the burden being put is it being put on uh, node operators? Is there a hierarchy of node operators? How does that change over time depending on what they're doing within the, within the network? Uh, what about the consumption of these people? How many, you know, how does that work? What are they, what, what's required of them as the network grows over time? How does the, how does the money get dispersed across all these different players? And is that going to be enough to, for them to consume the services that they may or may not find valuable? Like if you're not asking those questions as a project, that you haven't seriously thought about scale or even how your project actually operates. And I think that's that's a, at least a minimal requirement to then start to even fathom what's way down the line when you start to run into these barriers of like, oh shit, ISPs are throttling us because we're we're more than a blip on the radar. Or like... I mean, that's, that's a great yeah. viewpoint, right? I yeah. mean, uh, in my mind, I kind of map that to the architect's role and maybe the architect is just an Uber developer. Um, these individuals need to kind of think about that for their project at a higher higher level, right? Beyond just the 12 to 18 month view of what can my project slash protocol do. Um, you know, the the assumption there is uh, if I'm successful, uh, what's going to be my roadblocks, right? And to your point, uh, modeling bandwidth and what implications of that consumption has uh, on the world around uh, the bandwidth uh, should be at the top of everyone's mind. And uh, again, I'm that, that little fly on the wall that just randomly brings it up once in a while. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I do my best. I tried, uh, I'm planning to put like a blog, a couple of blogs together, just kind of educating people uh, in my spare time, uh, unfortunately, which is becoming less these days. Uh, but uh, it's what I do uh, when I can. But I, I agree with you, Corey, 100%. Um, well, uh, I think that's about all I got. But I could probably talk about this for ever. I find this stuff fascinating. That's why I brought you on in the first place. But John, you got any other questions or? Uh, Bitcoin, are you a big blocker or a small blocker? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a pretty good question. Like, that's a pretty good question in this scenario. What's the, what's the right answer? Oh, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just a holder. Um, I, I haven't really kept uh, up. I, uh, in the sp from a space point of view, I I'm on and off. So, um, I won't make a, yeah, I don't have an answer for you. I just, I, I, I increase my holdings gradually or, you know, every month uh, here and there when I can. Um, and I have some other, other money and, uh, some, some funds that kind of index on that, on the crypto stuff. But other than that, um, you I try to play, to, uh, like, tell us about your bags. I, I, I really <laughs> just, like, it's, it's just, okay. A, Was it a quick answer? Fine. Uh, I don't know what the right one is. Is it longer or is it it's whatever your answer wants to be? Yeah, so, so are, you, are you familiar with the this like big block small block debate that is like quieted down? But it was it was. I have. So, no. so you know, like no. a 
oh. might find this interesting then. So like a Bitcoin block can hold um, one megabyte. So every you know every ten minutes you get about a megabyte of transaction data that oh okay process. okay. Uh, and some time ago there was there was this debate about whether that ceiling should be lifted. Um, and the, in order to you know enable some some kind of quick and dirty scaling of network capacity, um, and it sounds like a simple win, but you get into all these questions about decentralization and and security cost and you know can the resources in the Yukon to like and to distribute a block across the globe yeah. in a short enough time for them to not have an advantage over. Uh, like the rest of the network in terms of binding the next block, things like that. But this is, I feel like this has been around for at least when I was actively engaged, like two, two years ago though, wasn't oh, yeah. this coming up then? Oh okay. yeah. Okay. Okay. So, uh, I'm a short blogger then or, or, uh, current, current size then, um, knowing what <laughs> to easily, easily be done with the network. Um, I can definitely appreciate the concerns, security concerns on the big blocks. Um, I mean, was, well, wasn't that, this is like a couple of years ago. I'm trying to not, yeah. I mean, lightning Lightning Network built on top of it. I'm trying to remember. Uh, wasn't there a transition period? Uh, there was a, what was it called? Segregated uh, something. On. Yes, uh, Segwit, right? Wasn't that mm -hmm. kind of the whole uh, and that, that effectively of that, put it to a little bit over two megabytes effectively uh, due to the, the the segregated witness, sweet engineering names, uh, and then some other optimizations and further other optimizations, just maybe like their way to make blocks even more efficient, so on and so forth. But effectively, like a Bitcoin proper block is around two megabytes uh with with the witness okay. attached and so I guess that's I lost a that one reasonable day. thing to kind of like agree like yeah there's more capacity uh and we're not actively burdening the, the like the validator network too much uh in terms of like security okay. and bandwidth consumes things like that just as a network guy i know how easy it is to manipulate the network perfect example was at least uh three four years ago ether wallet um Someone hijacked the prefix. Someone got access to a router that was unsecured, started announcing saying, hey, I own Route 53 in US East. So all of Amazon's DNS started going through this router, which they happened to then direct some of the traffic to a server, which they tricked the DNS servers of Route 20, Route 53 for that specific pre prefix, which happened to be the one that is a my Ether wallet or Ether wallet, whatever, whatever it was two, three years ago. Long story short, they were they hijacked the DNS for my Ether wallet using the network. And they redirected everyone to their website that looked just like it. And they, I think they stole a couple of millions of dollars in Ether before someone realized. So uh, not that hard to do these kind of things. So, um, you know, and this that went back to my earlier point is if you can figure out a way to rebuild this infrastructure, which would securely, that security that's inherent to the protocols where a simple hijack like that is not possible. Um, that would, I think, be the sweet spot from a, from a technical point of view to incentivize existing operators to even look at this technology. But anyways, that was kind of that's that's that an entirely different episode, uh, which I have quite a few yep. uh, things to All talk right, guys. about as well. So, Marco, appreciate you coming on. Uh, I look forward to hearing you more in this in the, in the Bitcoin podcast Slack. And uh, thanks for thanks for talking to us. Yeah, likewise. Uh, thanks, Corey and John. This was fascinating. Thank you. Yep.